Well, the book of Daniel has been filled with some exciting things. Daniel chapter 1, we watch Daniel uh, make a stand and he will not uh, compromise in terms of his diet and the king's delicacies. He didn't want to break the law of his God. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of the multi-metallic image, right? The head of gold. Chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then the feet mixed with iron and clay. And he said, I want my wise men to not only interpret the dream, but to tell me what the dream was. They couldn't do it. Daniel had a prayer meeting. Daniel gave the dream and the interpretation. Daniel 7 has a direct connection to Daniel 2. We'll talk about that in a moment. In Daniel 3, we had the famous story of the fiery furnace, right? We had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego take their stand against King Nebuchadnezzar. When the band plays, everybody's supposed to bow, but the three Hebrew youths say, Oh no, we won't bow, right? And the king's furious, and he heats up the furnace, and we know the story. A fourth one, looking like the son of the gods, or the son of God, who's real shiny, entered into the fire, right? And the uh, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, had an experience with the living God and proclaimed something that sounds very much like he was a believer. And then in Daniel chapter 5, the writing was on the wall. And King Belshazzar was having a party and he used the holy vessels to drink wine to the gods of silver and gold and all of that, praising them. And the writing was on the wall. A disembodied hand said, you've been weighed in the scales and found, found wanting. And King Belshazzar's knees knocked together and he was freaked out and he got an interpretation all right. You're going to die. Your kingdom is over. Kaput. Capiche? That's Italian. And then in Daniel chapter 6, what did we learn about last week? The famous story of the lion's den. No one can pray to any god except the king. He gets manipulated. Daniel takes a stand, opens the windows towards Jerusalem, prays three times a day, gets caught praying, goes into the lion's den, but the angel of the Lord shut the mouths of the lions and another king, his name being Darius or possibly Cyrus, the Persian proclaims praise to the God of Daniel. All these famous stories that we all love. Maybe many of you heard these in Sunday school. And we move from Daniel 6 to Daniel 7. And many of you might be thinking, well, what's in Daniel 7? And what's Daniel 8? What's in Daniel 9 and 10 and 11 and 12? Well, I'll tell you tonight. It is filled with prophecy. In fact, the rest of the book of Daniel is largely prophetic. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? Here's what I mean. The first part of the book of Daniel has a lot of practical life lessons. Faith in the fire, taking your stand, all of that. The last half of the book of Daniel is very prophetic. In fact, it's going to move us from the time of the Babylonian kingdom in the 500s BC all the way to the return of Jesus Christ yet in our future. And it's going to tie to the image in Daniel 2, uh, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and to what Daniel is going to see in a vision in Daniel chapter 7. So if you're willing to take this journey through the rest of the book and learn maybe some of the content that you haven't studied before, I think you're going to see that the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. It's an exciting study. It's an exciting, uh, it's exciting content, but I'll tell you it's a little bit more work you're going to have to put your thinking cap on a little bit more in these stories. And some of it's a little bit scary because there's images and things about judgment and, and so forth that have uh, connections to the book of Revelation. But you want to know what the future holds, right? You want to understand prophecy. I hope you do because all of the Bible is inspired by God. It's all profitable. And my job is to give you the full counsel of God, not just to stop at Daniel 6 because we learned about the lion's den and we all like the lion's den, right? But we need to study all of the Bible and we need to understand the scriptures. And so we're going to move into maybe some new sledding for some of you, but I think it's going to be very insightful and profound. It says in Daniel 7, 1, notice if you'd follow along, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. 
Now notice there is a time marker. Uh, the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, is the time marker when Daniel saw the dream. We do know that the events of chapters 5 and 6 uh, have already, uh, excuse me, let me read my notes here. Uh, in chapter 5, we studied a bit of history on Belshazzar. He became co-regent with his father in 553 B.C., this happened before the events of chapters 5 and 6 because we know Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall in chapter 5, the lion's den in chapter 6. So we have the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel has this dream, this vision. Daniel said, as he describes the summary, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven, heaven seems to be the source here, or God, were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now as Daniel looked in his vision, he saw these four winds stirring up the sea. They may be the Mediterranean Sea or just the sea representing humanity, which we do see in the book of Revelation. Heaven was behind the rise of these beasts. That seems to be the connection here. Heaven stirs up the sea and the beasts begin to rise from the sea. Just a reminder that one of the major themes of the book of Daniel is the dominion of the everlasting God, that God is sovereign, that he rules, that he reigns, that he's ultimately responsible for the world that he made. And so notice in verse 3, the stirring up of the sea and then four great beasts were coming up from the sea and they were different from one another. Daniel is going to ask about these beasts. If you look at verse 17, skip down for a second. These great beasts, which are four in number, he gets an answer, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So oftentimes when we're studying a passage and we wonder, well, what's the interpretation? When you keep reading, oftentimes you'll get the interpretation. So Daniel is going to ask. The first was like a lion. The first of the beasts was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. Notice, Bible students, you have the word like, so this is a simile. This, he was like a lion, not exactly like one, but like a lion. Now, there's going to be a parallel between the dream of Daniel chapter 2 and the beast of Daniel chapter 7. And here's simply how it works. As you move from the head of the statue down to the feet, you will see the beast of Daniel 7 mirror the uh, following the statue from the head down. So as the head of gold was Babylon... King Nebuchadnezzar. So the first uh, beast here, the lion with the wings of an eagle, as I kept looking until its wings were plucked and was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. The lion is a symbol of Babylon. In much of ancient literature, Babylon's symbol is a lion with eagle's wings. The Ishtar Gate, for example, gave access to the city's processional street whose walls were lined with enameled lions. And so the key figure or the picture of Babylon is a lion here with wings of an eagle. Notice as we move down paralleling the statue, I kept looking until its wings were plucked. If the lion represents Babylon and namely Nebuchadnezzar, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar that might describe the plucking of wings? Well, he got proud and he was out on his balcony and God judged him. And he had those seven seasons when he went mad and he was eating grass and so forth. And then at the end of those seven seasons, his mind was restored to him. He was brought back to his, uh, his right mind and to his position. Notice, he was lifted up from the ground, middle of four, after the plucking of the wings, made to stand on two feet like a man, restored, if you will, and a human mind also was given to it. And so many Bible scholars would say that it's clear that the first uh, symbol is Babylon and it's the restoration, the fall and restoration of King Nebuchadnezzar. Behold, another beast, verse 5, a second one resembling a bear. It, as Daniel sees the vision on his bed, was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Now, we've all probably had some maybe pretty dramatic dreams and we've tried to piece together what things mean. And remember, I've given you a warning that most dreams probably don't mean anything. They probably have to do with what you were thinking about at the end of an evening or 
uh, if you ate a late night burrito with extra hot sauce or that kind of thing. But you know, God has from time to time used dreams. And uh, here we can see that Daniel's uh, being given one. And he was also able to interpret dreams. And the, the, the second beast that comes up out of the sea of humanity resembles a bear. We see what it has in its mouth. The bear is raised up on one side. It's a picture showing the Persian Empire soon to become dominant over the Medes. Remember, as we follow world history, the major world empires were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. Now we're talking about the time of Belshazzar there. Then if you start fast-forwarding down from Belshazzar, the nation that took over, that uh, caused the fall of Belshazzar on that fateful night when the writing was on the wall was the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persian army was outside the gate and so the second kingdom, in line with the dream of chapter 2, uh, here represented by the bear, is the Medo-Persian Empire. The three ribs of the bear has in its mouth likely pictures three major kingdoms conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, his son called Camses, conquered the Lydian kingdom, if you're interested in taking notes, in 546 B.C., conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., and Egypt in 525 B.C. And so at the time that Daniel saw this, he may not have understood every aspect or angle of this, but looking back, we can see what happened. After this, Daniel says, I kept looking, and behold, another one, the third of the four beasts, was like, keyword, like a leopard. The leopard, no doubt, is a symbol of the Grecian Empire after the time of Alexander the Great, the kingdom was divided into four. So notice, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And notice the repetition of the numeric four. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now, Alexander the Great was an incredible military genius, a strategist. He died at the age of 33. Some people believe, as they look at history, that Alexander the Great died after an alcohol binge one night. There is another uh, aspect of the story that he was attempting to rebuild Babylon. And as he attempted to rebuild Babylon, he died um, in that pursuit. And so let me just read a little bit from one of the commentaries. Alexander the Great overthrew the Persian uh, kingdom and conquered all the kingdoms of the known world in just 12 years. He did this from 336 to 324 B.C. Alexander's kingdom stretched from the entire eastern Mediterranean world in the west. It extended as far as India in the east. According to Plutarch, when Alexander conquered Persia, it took 10,000 camels to carry away all the booty. In 324 B.C., the youthful conqueror of the world visited the tomb of Cyrus the Great at a place called Passer Gade. Alexander died a year later at the age of 33 trying to rebuild Babylon, which God said through the prophet Jeremiah, if you're interested in the address, it's 51, 24 through 26, that Babylon would lay desolate and never be rebuilt. He prophesied that Babylon would be desolate forever. In the late 1980s, many of you will remember that Saddam Hussein, the then dictator of Iraq, tried to rebuild Babylon. He was working on the palace when Operation Desert Storm broke out. God raised up 500,000 troops, says this writer, from the nations of the world to stop this man's invasion of Kuwait. In the bombing raids that followed, the Allies, uh, allies destroyed everything in Babylon that he had built, and its remains are desolate to this very day. You don't mess with the word of God. When... Uh, Alexander the Great died. He had no heir. He died at the age of 33. There's one story that after conquering the known world, he went to his bedroom and began to cry like a baby because there were no more nations to conquer. <laughs> My life's over. I can't kill people and dominate anymore. And so having no heir, his kingdom was split into, uh, by, uh, into four generals' rule. In Egypt, one named Ptolemy I ruled. In the eastern provinces, the general was Seleucus I. In Macedonia and Greece, 
Antipater and Cassander took power, and in Thrace and Asia Minor, one called Lysimachus became the general. It was split into four. And so isn't it interesting? This is why liberal scholars who look at the prophecies of the book of Daniel believe, they have to argue, that some other author under the name of Daniel wrote somewhere around 165 B.C. because nobody could have this information of coming kingdoms before they happened. Unless, of course, God was giving Daniel the information because God knows history in advance. He can't learn anything. He writes history in advance. It's called predictive prophecy. It's one of the reasons that you should be excited about your Bible. Because your Bible is the word of God. And so remember there's four beasts. So Daniel says after this, the third one is Greece. So we've been moving down the statue from Babylon, the head of gold, chest and arms of silver. We got the Medo-Persian Empire. Belly and thighs of bronze. We have the Grecian Empire. And now we're going to move to the legs of iron. Notice after this, verse 7, I kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it, it had large iron teeth. Now remember, the legs in Daniel 2 are of iron. And it, this last beast, no, it's, notice that it's not compared to any known animal. We had a lion, we had a, we had a tiger, and we had a bear. Oh my. No, it wasn't that. It was, a, it was a lion, a bear, and a leopard, right? I just was stuck on the Wizard of Oz. I thought you guys might appreciate that. But anyway... But this fourth beast is not compared to an animal, but it is a fourth beast, dreadful, terrifying, and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. Think of Daniel 2 and the legs of iron. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. We know the legs of iron in Daniel 2 is Rome. And it was different from all the beasts or the empires that were before it. And notice, here's a key. It had ten horns. It was not comparable to any known animal. It has this distinct ten horns. Now, some people think the ten horns compares to the ten toes of the feet of iron mixed with clay in Daniel chapter 2. I'll leave that up to you to, to think about whether there's a connection there, but many do see the connection. And the legs of iron all agree is Rome because you move from Babylon, the head, to the Medo-Persian Empire, chest and arms of silver, uh, to the belly and thighs of bronze, which was Greece, and then the dominant world empire from 63 B.C. to 476 A.D. was Rome. The Roman army swept across the known world and dominated the known world. And the only reason that Rome crumbled, they say, was from within. And they believe, scholars believe and historians believe, because of the mixture of different people groups within the Roman Empire, uh, iron mixed with clay, if you will, but also because of the corruption of government and immorality and so forth. And far, finally, the barbarians attacked Rome. And I'm giving you history now so you can know the Bible obviously aligns with history or vice versa. In 476 B.C., the barbarians came in and took Rome, and Rome was dissolved. From 476 B.C. to the modern day, there has not been a dominant world empire. Just think about it. There hasn't been one. Now, we could say that there's been some empires that have been close. There's been some empires that have tried to dominate the world. In fact, in our recent past, Nazi Germany was on a track so they thought, of world domination under Adolf Hitler and his madness and all that went on there and him trying to exterminate all inferior so-called races. And he did his damage, but he was stopped once again by allied forces, by the grace of God. Amen? And so here we are. We're, we're kind of tracking through history. And Daniel, from sometime in the mid-500s B.C., is seeing all the way to the time of Jesus Christ. Now, think about it. Jesus Christ was born, lived, and died in the dominant time of what, which empire? Rome. We know that the Caesars were living at that time. We know that Rome was the dominant empire. For those of you who are prophecy students, the down payment of the kingdom of God, the rock cut without hands that would destroy the statue and blow it to smithereens and so forth, was made in the first advent of Jesus Christ. His first coming. 
He lived during the reign of the Roman emperors, if you will, during the sweeping uh, uh, dominance of Rome. And he died on a cross, and his kingdom will have no end. As you think about this last beast empire, many of you are familiar with the fact that many prophecy experts believe that the last world empire will be a revived Roman empire. And of course, in years past, some believe that it was attached to the Roman Catholic Church. Many are moving away from that view now. I don't hold that view But I think what you need to understand as a student of Scripture is that oftentimes what happens is that kingdoms of ages past become composite uh, pictures of kingdoms yet future. So they may carry some aspects that you can project to the future of a final world empire. And you all know that there is going to be a final world empire, and it's going to be ruled by one who is called the beast. He's the final beast. And we're going to see a connection between Daniel 7 and Revelation 12, 13, and 17 in a moment. Let me just go back to Rome for a second so that we can talk a little bit about Rome. The Roman armies swept across the ancient world, defeated one nation after another, until the empire extended from the Atlantic Ocean east to the Caspian Sea, from North Africa to the Rhine to the Danube rivers. Egypt, Palestine, Syria were all under Roman domination. Jesus came in the time that Rome was ruling, and he died, and he rose from the dead in that very history in which uh, that time was embedded. The Roman Empire was the dominant force. We know uh, Nero persecuted Peter and Paul. We know that there's a lot of connections to the Roman Empire and that history because that's the time when Jesus came. And so notice that there, when we looked at the ten horns, we're told later they are ten kings. Now, we believe that what that tells us is that there's a future kingdom coming, and we'll see this in the book of Revelation, that is not directly connected to Rome. It may have some composite connection, but it's not Rome. There's some future empire coming that will uh, have this connection to these ten kings because there were over 60 kings that ruled in the Roman Empire. So it's not the Roman Empire of old that we're talking about. This world-dominating empire that's revealed in Daniel 7 will make war with the saints and defeat them. Daniel 7.21. Take a look with me as we'll skip ahead for a moment as we get the big picture. I kept looking, Daniel 7.21 And that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. You'll notice in Daniel 7.22, God intervenes until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And uh, I believe just this is my view that that judgment passed in favor of the saints will be at the return of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself. Now go back to Daniel 7 verse 8. He says, while I was contemplating the horns on on this last dreadful dominant beast, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. Some of you may have heard this before of the little horn of Daniel 7. Well, here it is. And most prophecy experts believe the little horn of Daniel 7 is the Antichrist. Notice he comes up among them. He's another horn among the ten, if you will, as Daniel contemplated the horns. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So all of a sudden, this last horn, as Daniel contemplates it, he's, he's, he's uh, thinking about it, he's examining it, he's considering it. This horn, which often depicts power in the ancient world like the horn of an animal, possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And all of a sudden this horn is kind of transformed and there's eyes and a mouth and it begins to boast and we're going to find that it's speaking arrogant blasphemies against the God of heaven. In fact, it is bent on making war with the God of heaven. And with that in mind, would you hold your place in Daniel and turn to Revelation 12. Revelation 12. 
It's page 2065. Now, if you're having trouble finding Revelation, we'll talk after the service, but it is the last book of the Bible. Anyway, Revelation 12, 17, notice what happens. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, Revelation 12, 17, and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now, the woman in Revelation 12, 17 is Israel. The rest of her offspring, which this dragon goes to make war with, we would say is the church who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Who's the dragon, Bible students? Satan. The dragon gives power to the beasts. Move into chapter 13, look at verse 1. And the dragon stood uh, on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Now think Daniel 7. Four beasts came up out of the sea there. Here in Revelation 13, there's a beast I saw, says John, coming up out of the sea, the sea of humanity, some believe the Mediterranean, having what? Ten horns, think to Daniel 7, uh, representative of, of kings, as we mentioned. The, the ten horns are ten kings. And seven heads, probably representative of kingdoms or nations here. And on his horns were ten diadems or crowns. On his head were what? Blasphemous names. So you can see that there is a connection here between Revelation 13 and what we have seen in Daniel chapter 7. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Now remember we saw a leopard in Daniel 7. His feet were like those of a bear. We saw a bear in Daniel 7. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. We also saw that in Daniel 7. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now if we look at the leopard, the bear, and the lion, and we look at Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, what we can say, I think, safely is this. That the last world empire that comes on the scene, the empire of the Antichrist, will have kind of a composite of all the world-dominant empires of the past. It will have parts of Babylon, if you will, Medo-Persia and Greece, and also we will include Rome. The final world empire, the final Babylon, if you will, the final kingdom of the Antichrist will be a composite of the world empires in the past with a dictator and bent on world domination. And if you peel back the layers for a second and think with me, the one thing that the, the nations had in common moving from Egypt all the way down to Rome was one thing, persecution and hatred of the Jewish people. And as an interpreter of the Bible, I get an insight as to what to look for. One thing to look for in the final world empire led by the Antichrist will be a hatred and a persecution of Israel. And much to many people's surprise who are Bible interpreters uh, that have been watching the prophecy and wondering if there'd be literal fulfillment, they saw the nation of Israel return and recapture Jerusalem in 1967. Oh my goodness, buckle your seatbelt, Israel's back in the land. And there's talk of a temple being rebuilt. And there's training of priests and how to do sacrifices. And the nations of the world, how many of them like Israel? How many true allies does Israel have? I mean, look around, folks. This is an interesting and exciting time to live. Because Israel is back in the land and there's persecution and there's stuff going on there all the time. And so notice what happens. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, verse 3, and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. This last world leader, this dictator or antichrist, will seem to go through something that looks like a death and a resurrection, probably faked. And they worship the dragon, that's Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast. Maybe Satan has possessed this beast to give him his power. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemy, 
and authority to act for 42 months. Bible students, that's three and a half years, was given to him. Authority is given. God's sovereign. He's given this authority to act for three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him, to Antichrist, to make war with who? With the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Notice he is going to make war with the saints. And I know this is a verse that a lot of people don't want to look at, but here it is, and to overcome them. There's going to be a time for the saints that are on the planet at this time when the Antichrist will have the upper hand. In verse 10, it says, If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he will go. If anyone uh, kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. So here is what takes patient endurance. Here is what some of you may need to hear as an alternate view of what you were raised with. It is quite possible that the church will go through the great tribulation and have to deal with the Antichrist. Because the word saints is used in the book of Galatians in a greeting, in Ephesians in a greeting, and it's another word for the church. And you may have heard people say, well, the church isn't mentioned after a certain place early in Revelation. Yeah, but saints are mentioned. And so some people say, well, these are tribulation saints. Maybe, but maybe not. I guess all saints will be tribulation saints at that time. Amen. The question is, who will be here at that time? And who will the Antichrist be persecuting? It's the offspring of the woman, the ones who have been grafted in, the church. But be a good cheer, because he'll only have a limited time to do his damage. And it will really only matter to the ones that are here. But let me just say to you, for those who are here, if, they are, if they've at least heard this as a possibility in your last day's view that the church may go through at least a portion of Daniel's 70th week, it would be good to hear the alternate view because if the alternate view is true and you're still here, then you won't think that God gave up on you or the Bible's not true. Are you with me? So this is what's been called a historic premillennial view held by Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, just to name a few. The historic premillennial view says the church will see the Antichrist. They will have to face persecution, but they will experience deliverance at the return of Christ and a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Praise God. That's what's coming. The church has always experienced persecution, we know. Of course, it's been at different levels in different places, but here's what we get from Daniel 7 as we compare it to Revelation 13. Now, I'm going to give you just a few aspects uh, of this kingdom in rapid fire, and I'm going to quickly run out of time, and I may have to do this in two parts. Let's see how quick we can move. I do believe that the world, the coming world kingdom of the Antichrist has some connection to the Roman Empire, but to all the empires mentioned in Daniel 2 and 7. Here's what we know. Number one, I'm going to give you seven quick points. There are going to be 10 kings ruling at the time of the end. Revelation 17, 12. They will at a given point, if you want to just skip over, skip over to Revelation 17 while you're there. There will be 10 kings ruling at the time. Revelation 17, 12. They will at a given point choose one man to rule over them. Revelation 17, 13. It will be a kingdom at war with the Lamb, but will be destroyed by him. Revelation 17, 14, these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. His rule will include fierce persecution of the saints, Revelation 13, 7, 
We'll see this in Daniel 7.25 and Revelation 12.17. It will consist of a religious system, a one-world religious system and government that demands mandatory worship or you die. Revelation 13.15, just giving you the facts. And it will be a one-world economic system, according to Revelation 13, 16, and 17. This will be up on the website if I'm going too fast. A one-world economic system that says you must take the mark of the beast to be able to buy or sell. And if you don't have the mark, you cannot buy or sell. So all seven, quickly, just because I know some of you are trying to take notes. It'll be ten kings ruling at the time. They will choose one man to rule over them, number two. It will kingdom at war with the Lamb, number three. World dominion, dictatorship over the world, number four. It will be a kingdom with fierce persecution against the saints, number five. It will consist of a religious system or a one-world religion, mandatory worship or you die, number six. It will have a one-world economic system, number seven. So there are many things that we do know about what's going to happen in the last days. These are just some of them. And we do get some insights about the man of lawlessness as we'll move into Daniel 8 next time we're together. But what I want to do is leave you with some good news and some hope. So I want you to turn back to Daniel 7 and show you how this all concludes or what God does to thwart it. Daniel has told us about this beast different from all the others, the eyes of a man, mouth uttering boasts at war with heaven and so forth. And he says, verse 9, I kept looking. I want to park there for a second. Here's a practical application. Sometimes when the news is bad and the clouds are gray and it seems like there's no other way, keep looking. Keep studying your Bible. Keep looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll see him one day. Every eye will see him. You're going to see him. I'm going to see his face. Can you believe it? We're going to see his face. So be of good cheer. Daniel says, I kept, I kept looking, and boy, Daniel's locked into this dream and vision. He said, until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, speaks of God's eternality, he's eternal, took his seat. His vesture was like white snow. The hair of his head like pure wool. These are descriptions that are spoken of of Jesus in Revelation 1. You can look at verse 14 and following. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. I don't even know how to interpret that. But it's pretty cool. A river of fire was flowing and it came out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads. Myriad is the, the largest Greek word that could be used here. So it's really an uncountable number. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him and the court sat and the books were open. And it's as if God's saying, Daniel, keep looking. I know you saw some dreadful beasts. I know there's been these world empires. I know your people's been in captivity and will be for 70 years in Babylon. But wait, I am in control of history. I'm still on my throne. I'm still a consuming fire. And the river flowed. The thousands were attending the Lord. And the court sat, end of verse 10, and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words. He saw the throne room of God, which we see in Revelation 4 and 5. But the boastful words of that little horn were also speaking. Sometimes we're trying to keep our eye on God, but there's people around us who are squawking. And we're like, we're like oh Lord, help me to stay focused on Jesus on the 91. <laughs> uh, uh, squawk, squawk, uh. Oh, Lord, let me keep my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, the one who is at the right hand of the throne on high. Man, Daniel had to deal with that. He was seeing the throne room of God, but then there's this squawky little horn. And it was speaking. And I kept looking 
Now, Daniel might have thought, man, this last beast looks so intimidating, so awesome, uh, thrashing around, doing damage. It's like nothing I ever saw before. But I kept looking until what? Until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Well, we know that the beast, Revelation 19, I think it's verses 19 and 20, will be thrown, where? Into the lake of fire. The beast that looks so deadly, so unconquerable, oh, is nothing to our great God and Savior. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and the glory of his coming. The Antichrist is going to be like, ah! Amen? That's it. You see, we're talking about God. We're talking about the creator of the heavens and the earth. We're talking about King of kings and Lord of lords. That beast, that last beast, that will do so much damage, and no doubt he will. Well, he will be destroyed. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Let me park here for a second. This particular section may be the answer to the question, who enters into the millennial reign that's not a believer? Well, apparently some of the leaders of the world at this time will survive the day of the Lord. However that works, I don't know for sure. And they will enter in. They'll get an extension of life. They won't be thrown into the lake of fire for a granted time. And these will be the ones that rebel at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Some of you have wondered about that. And I want to show you, and I'm only getting halfway through Daniel 7, but i got to show you something in Zechariah. Let's go over uh, second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah, then Malachi. All right. You want chapter 14. Let me show you this because this is cool and this gives you some insight on what's ahead. This is Zechariah 14. Look at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations, Zechariah 14, 2, against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished. Half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights in a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Some of you have walked down the Mount of Olives with us, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will be moved toward the north the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach Azil. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God, God will come and all the holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be summer as well as in the winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon south from, uh, of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And the people will live in it and there will be no more curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, right in your margin, Indiana Jones, there it is, and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. 
And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, all the cattle that will come, uh, that will be in those camps. And then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will enter into the millennial reign. Here's where I believe we get further clarity. And will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate what? The Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth or the nations of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Skip down to verse 20. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. The cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bulls before the altar. And so you can see that we get some clarity as we piece together these aspects of the last days um, back to Daniel 7 and we'll finish. So, as all these things are unfolding and this last world empire is ravaging the earth, Daniel 7, 13, he says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, I believe that what Daniel 7 is telling us is that the second coming of Jesus Christ will bring the destruction of the beast, the Antichrist, the Rescue of the saints, the destruction of the Antichrist, the judgment of the world as the books are open, and then the uh, millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Notice, the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days and is presented before Him. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can see John 1.1 in Daniel 7.13. You can see Jesus, Son of Man, and the Father, if you will, the Ancient of Days, and Jesus is presented before him, and there's, he's coming with the clouds. Here's the second coming of Jesus. Here's the one that said, Ask of me. The Father says, Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And to him, the Son of Man was given dominion, Glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion, unlike these other kingdoms that come and go, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The other kingdoms will be destroyed. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And we will reign with him forever. And ever, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, Lord, we know in 2 Timothy, you said, If we endure with you, we shall, if we endure, we shall reign with you. And Lord, I know that you you say of the church that we will be overcomers in that day. Who is the one who overcomes? He who places faith, she who places faith in Jesus Christ. What is the world coming to? What, how do we see the world powers of our day? Nations that look strong and threatening. How do we look at the last days? How do we see those? What is our place in that? Well, we are going to rule and reign with you, Lord, forever. History is your story. And you are going to wind up the times just exactly as the scripture has been written. And just as the prophecies came to pass of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, the first coming of Jesus, so the world empire of the last days and the second coming of the king, well, they've been prophesied. It is written, Behold, you said, Lord, I've told you everything in advance. And you told us to be alert and to be ready and to be busy about your business, to occupy until you come. And Father, I just pray that you'll help us as we think about the last days. We don't know what generation. We don't know 
the day or the hour, but we do know that when a woman's pregnant, and this is an image used in Scripture, that when she's in her ninth month, she doesn't know the exact day or the hour, but she knows the time is coming. And Lord, we don't know that exact time, but you told us that we can at least understand the season. We can understand some of these things that we've studied tonight, and there's more to come. And I just pray that we would be uh, people who have wisdom, knowing how to navigate the times in which we live. And we are people that should be so grateful for the, the many blessings you've poured upon this nation, the many blessings you've poured upon the church, the many blessings you've poured upon our families, Lord. We are so blessed. And we don't want to take that for granted for a moment. We pray over our country, its leaders, its laws. And we pray, Lord, maybe first and foremost, our prayer should be for the church, for the saints, for the ones that you love, the ones that you came to rescue when you died on the cross and rose from the dead, and the ones that you're coming to rescue again when you return. You are a savior, a deliverer, our great God. And I'm just going to ask you if you maybe have come in here a bit overwhelmed by life or maybe you're just not sure where you're with the Lord tonight or how your walk's been, just anchor your trust in him. He's faithful. What he says he will do. He will be faithful to his word. So Father, I just pray you'd be breathing refreshment and life to your people. And if you're not a Christian tonight, You're not sure sure that you've met Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Just cry out to him. Just say, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and dying on that cross. Thank you for rising from the dead. And thank you for the fact that you're coming again. And I just want to be ready. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. And I want to be ready for when you return or when I go to be with you. Just cry out to him. He'll, he'll be faithful to save you. And Lord, we're just so grateful for your word. May you write it on our hearts tonight in Jesus' name.